Hey, Sobble Church Online, uh, hello. Welcome back to our teaching series, Forward Together in Love. Uh, we've been taking a rather slow and uh, kind of meandering walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, particularly focusing in on the first seven verses. And uh, last week, we were talking about love is patient, the patient quality of agape. And um, we talked about love is macro thumao, if you remember that word. Uh, it's slow to get hot, slow to get angry. Love is a long, long way from anger. And so today we want to begin to talk about the kind quality of agape, the fact that love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, love looks like kindness. I really like the, uh, the message paraphrase of the Bible. Um, I use it a lot, not as my main study Bible, but it is a really, really helpful secondary tool. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, devotional resource. And Eugene Peterson, who wrote this, is just, uh, well, he passed away about three, four years ago, but he was this amazing combination of brilliant scholar, theologian, expert in um, ancient languages and Semitic languages, plus uh, a really wonderful pastor, a lovely, kind uh, pastor who in his later life became really kind of a pastor to pastors, very prolific author. And um, he was so expressive and so witty and could turn a phrase in such a memorable and impactful way. And so Tammy read for us uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 7 from the message, as well as chapter 14, verse 1, again from the message. And chapter 14, verse 1 from the message says, Go after a life of love as if your life depended on it, because it does. If love is kind, if love looks like kindness, as the Apostle Paul says it does, we could actually paraphrase Peterson's paraphrase and say this, go after a life of kindness as if your life depended on it, because it does. Love is kind. That sounds so basic. It sounds so elementary, so Christianity 101, like Christianity kindergarten, and it is. It's, it sounds like Sunday school. It is Christianity 101 and it's Christianity PhD. It is the simplest thing, and yet it is also the most profound and most central thing that we can talk about. So what is kindness? Well, Peterson paraphrases it this way. Love cares more for others than for self. That's as good a definition as any of kindness. Kindness is caring more for others than for self. Now, let me just mention a few things that that doesn't mean, that kindness isn't. I don't think this means that you're kind if you let people walk all over you. I don't think that kindness means that you never ever consider what is best for you or in your best interests. Kindness does not mean that you always let other people have their own way. It certainly doesn't mean that you have to put up with uh, mean things or cruel things or um, abusive things and to somehow put up with that in the name of kindness. That is perhaps uh, dysfunctional codependency, but it's not kindness. 
It's not kind to another person, and it certainly isn't kind to you for you to allow another person um, to walk all over you. It's not kind to enable another person to be indecent towards you. That's not kindness. What kindness does mean, I think, is that you, you live your whole life without this perpetual thing going through your head of what's in it for me. What does this bring my way? Kindness is going out of your way to benefit another. And here's the selfless part of that. It's without a thought of what's coming back to you. Kindness is going out of your way to benefit another simply to ascribe to them the worth that they have because Jesus died for them without a thought of what's in it for you, without a thought of what's coming back to you. This morning's Sunday talk is going to be a little bit different. I want to take um, a little bit of a walk through bits of church history today and uh, want to make some comments about kindness. There have been times in church history where the church has just beautifully manifested the kind quality of agape. And there have been times, quite frankly, in church history where, where the church has manifested the exact opposite of that. The church was birthed in the midst of the Roman Empire in the first century. And perhaps no uh, city better exemplified the Roman Empire than the city of Rome itself. And in the first century, the city of Rome was approximately uh, one million people. A pagan place for sure. The Roman pantheon had all kinds of gods and all kinds of idols, kind of a, a god for every occasion. Immorality was just absolutely rampant in, uh, for sure in the city of Rome, but in part because it was really part of the official worship. Dishonesty in business was just normal. Corruption was everywhere. Immorality was normal. Uh, divorce and abandonment were just absolutely commonplace in that culture. And cities in the Roman Empire, including the city of Rome itself, they were dangerous places. They were filthy places. Uh, most everyone who wasn't wealthy uh, lived in uh, these uh, tenements. They were multi um, storied structures made out of wood, uh, very, very prone to fire. And uh, of course, they, th this was before sanitation. They had no uh, plumbing as we think of plumbing. And so uh, the higher rents were actually on the top floor, even though you had to walk up more stairs to get there. Uh, and, and maybe you can imagine why. So if, if all of your garbage and if all of your waste just gets chucked out the window, uh, probably best to be on the top floor, if you can uh, imagine. Virtually every family had children die. Uh, the vast majority of people who grew up in the Roman Empire, uh, by the time they reached an age of maturity, they had most likely lost at least one of their parents. Birth control was an unknown thing, but abortion was, interestingly enough, um, abortion was so prevalent in the city of Rome and in the Roman Empire in the first century, even more so than it is today in Canada. But uh, surgery was so primitive. Uh, there was no uh, anesthesia. There um, was no awareness, I, 
I, I think of germ theory, there was no antibacterial soap and things like that. And so um, many women would actually die during the uh, abortion, but if they live, they were very likely to have uh, significant um, infections and, and even be left sterile because of that. Infanticide was very common. So when a woman was pregnant and she would have the child, if that child was deformed in any way or born female, it is very likely that that baby would be taken away to the dump or to the seashore and just left to die. It was called death by exposure. If the baby was a boy, well, he would be valued and kept and so consequently, in the Roman Empire, the number of men significantly outnumbered the number of women. Uh, there were epidemics in the Roman Empire. They were far more devastating than what we're experiencing uh, today with COVID-19, or even with uh, things like Ebola or cholera. For them, it was smallpox, it was measles, it was bubonic plague. And some of those epidemics would literally wipe out half the population of a Roman city. And so when these cities became depopulated due to mass death that was caused by these epidemics, the Roman government would send out soldiers to the, uh, the, to the far-reaching areas of the empire and they would gather people almost like slaves would be gathered. And there would be this forced migration, sometimes tens of thousands of people being th this forced migration back into the city to repopulate that city. And so these, these, um, these people who were part of this forced migration, well, they would arrive in the city with no place to live. They wouldn't um, be able to speak the language. They would have no jobs. And and in those days, when um, the church was in its infancy, the Roman government was actually quite tolerant of, of not just the infant uh, Christian church, but they were really quite tolerant of, of all religions. And they were, they were okay with that as long as you were loyal to Caesar. And so this new thing of Christianity, um, it, it was largely tolerated. In part, I think, because it was simply considered to be um, like just a subset of Judaism, like a, like a sect or a denomination, if you will, of Judaism. And so it was tolerated and accepted um, in those earliest days. But increasingly, the government turned against Christians. And in uh, July 19th, uh, AD 64, it was a very, very significant turning point. The city of Rome burned um, for three straight days. And the tenements uh, that we talked about were destroyed and hundreds of thousands of people were left homeless. And there was this rumor circulating around the city of Rome that the actual cause of this fire was none other than the emperor himself, Nero. And uh, it seems that Nero had decided that uh, if, if he could destroy the city, well, then he could rebuild it and he could rebuild it bigger and better, uh, grander. That would be like this monument to his greatness. And Nero, it was said, would send out the Roman soldiers during this fire to actually stop the firefighters. Um, 
And in some cases, the, the soldiers would reignite flames that had been extinguished by the, by the firefighters. Now, Nero is not an admirable character by any stretch, uh, but he was smart, very politically savvy. And uh, he realized that with this information being circulated around the city, that he himself was in fact the cause of these fires, that was not gonna be good for him politically. That was gonna harm his political brand. So Nero being a savvy politician got together with some of his advisors and um, they, they created a spin, they spun a story. And what they did in this story is they put the responsibility for the fires on the Christians. And as I mentioned, up until this point, the Christians were relatively well accepted. And so Nero declared that it was actually the Christians that had burned the city. And so in that, he authorized um, very severe persecution of Christians. And there was a famous uh, Roman historian in the first century by the name of Tacitus, and uh, Tacitus wrote that under Nero's orders, Christians would be uh, captured and they would be sewn into the, the raw bloodied skins of animals and then thrown to wild dogs to be uh, ripped apart. Tacitus said that Christians were uh, crucified in such huge numbers that you could stand on the road and as far as the eye could see, you'd see nothing but crosses. Tacitus wrote that Christians would be um, gathered up, they would be covered in an oily pitch, they'd be put on crosses or hung on hooks to um, illuminate the imperial gardens for Nero's evening parties. Tacitus said that even the worst of criminals in the Roman Empire uh, had sympathy for the Christians because of how incredibly brutally and severely they were being dealt with. That was AD 64. You know, and we have Christians today who feel like they're persecuted because uh, we have to wear masks and observe gathering restrictions and things like that. I would hate to have to go back to the first century and explain that to these first century Jesus followers. Well, what did the first century followers of Jesus do in response to this persecution? Demonstrations, protests, no. For the first three centuries of church history, the first 300 years of the church, the church practiced outrageous love. They weren't in power politically. They weren't trying to control anybody. They just simply spread the good news of Jesus by the influence of their self-sacrificial love. They modeled the cross to the world around them and the, the church grew in incredible, miraculous and powerful ways. Even though Christians were being persecuted for those first 300 years of church history, certainly not, not all the time as much as other times, but they were uh, persecuted, tortured and even killed as we, as we mentioned. The early church cared for the poor. They cared for the sick. The early church elevated the status and the value of women. The early Christians um, kept their female babies. They didn't abandon them. In fact, the early church, the early Christians would go out and they would rescue those um, 
newborn babies that had been um, discarded and left to die by exposure. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do this in the daylight. They'd go out under cover of darkness and they'd go to the dump and to the seashore and up into the hills and they would listen for the cries of newborn infants and they would rescue those babies and they would take them home and they would adopt them as their own and they would raise them to love Jesus. And when plagues would hit, the, the standard operating procedure for a Roman citizen when they uh, say they're working in their shop and they hear that there is some sickness, they would just drop everything and go. And they would literally head to the hills where there was uh, fresh air and they could uh, avoid smallpox or bubonic plague, whatever was happening at the time. They would leave. But the problem was that at home, they might leave elderly parents or they might leave disabled family members or they might leave young children and they just abandoned them. And many who died um, during these epidemics didn't actually die from the epidemic, but they died from neglect. They died from starvation because their fathers or mothers simply left them behind. It was the Jesus followers who stayed in the city. It was the Jesus followers, the, the Christians, who would care for the, the abandoned and who would care for the, the, um, the sick. The Christians cared for the sick even to the extent of their own peril. And they fed and they clothed and they cared for the young children who had been abandoned. And, and what, would, what would sometimes happen is, is those who had fled would come back some months later only to find out that their family members had given their hearts to Jesus because they themselves had experienced the kind quality of agape that their own families hadn't provided. And so when these Roman cities were to be repopulated after the plagues, and uh, as I mentioned, the, the government would send out the military out to the far uh, corners of the empire and, and basically round up people by the tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, and bring them forced migration into the city to repopulate those cities. What the government didn't provide for, for those people, the church did. And historically, the church has been a place for immigrants, a place of caring, a place of safety, a place of welcoming for immigrants. And we know from scripture that's, that is God's heart. And so it was Christians who would provide jobs. It was Christians who would provide places to live. It was Christians who would teach the language. And so immigrants uh, in large numbers started coming to faith in Jesus. They, they experienced the kind quality of agape. And so the result of this was just incredible growth in the early church. Rodney Stark is a, a professor at Baylor University, and he's the author of a, a bunch of books on early church history. And in one of his books, he wrote that in AD 40, there were 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. Just 160 years later, in other words, 200 AD, Stark says there were 218,000 Christians. That's pretty significant growth, but even at 218,000 Christians, Christians still represented less than 1% of the population of the empire, but the church kept growing and multiplying, so much so that by the year AD 350, there were 33.9 million Christians in the Roman Empire, representing 56% of the population. 
you know, how did they go from a thousand to 34 million? From being sewn into the skins of animals and, and hung on crosses and lit on fire to becoming the most dominant culture, dominant force in the Roman Empire. There are not two or more answers to that question. There's only one. They were outrageously loving. In AD 313, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the um, Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity. And then in 381 AD, Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Christianity, you know, it had been for 300 years, it had been so countercultural. It had been so upside down. Well, now it's normalized. Now it's, um, now it's a territorial thing. Now it's a, a political thing. And I don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever that it is just one year after this that for the first time in recorded history, you see Christians killing someone. A mob of Christians attacked a pagan teacher and killed him. So something was changing here and certainly not for the better. A couple of years after that, St. Augustine um, would use a parable that Jesus taught that's recorded in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says, go out to the roads and, and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Well, Augustine just um, thought about that word compel, compel. And so he felt like that justified coercive evangelism, like you can coerce people into the kingdom of Jesus. And then throughout history, you just find that the institution of the church has not demonstrated the, this outrageous kindness of love. The institutional church put heretics to death. This normalized, now political church um, literally killed people. And this isn't a newsflash, but that's not kind. They went on crusades, not kind. There, were, uh, there was the Inquisition, not kind. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were put to death, killed by the institution of the church, not kind. And just in case some of you are, are sort of clucking your tongue and uh, thinking, oh, those nasty Catholics, the Protestants did the exact same thing. When the Protestant movement first began in uh, the 1500s, it was really interesting because when it first began, they championed um, freedom of conscience. They, they were saying, oh, we should never coerce people. Not at all. They, they valued this freedom of conscience. But as soon as the Protestants got in power, they began to do the same thing. John Calvin a French theologian and hero of the Protestant Reformation burned Michael Servetus at the stake using green wood so that it would burn longer. That's not kind. That's not love. Martin Luther, a German theologian and priest, another hero of the Protestant Reformation, 
1543, he wrote a 65,000 word anti-Semitic essay called On the Jews and Their Lies. And in this essay, Luther uh, urged the persecution of the Jews. And in that book, he argued that Jewish synagogues and schools should be set on fire, their prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden, uh, forbidden to preach, homes burned, and property and money confiscated. He wrote, uh, they, the Jews, should be shown no mercy, no kindness. They should be afforded no legal protection, and these, as he called them, poisonous and venomed worms, should be drafted into forced labor or expelled for all time. He even seemed to advocate their killing, writing, we are at fault in not slaying them. And I don't wanna go so far as to say that a German Protestant theologian of the 1500s somehow was impactful or influential to later uh, anti-Semitic German thought in the 1900s, but we do know uh, that copies of Luther's book during World War II were held up by Nazis at rallies. And in his book, Luther wrote that the Jews are full of the devil's feces, which they wallow in like swine. That is not kind. That is not love. Love is kind. And that is not kind. I should say that the, um, that the Lutheran church or, or, or many Lutheran churches, many Lutheran denominations have denounced uh, Luther's book as they should. You know, there's just something so fundamentally off about that. There has never been a time in church history when the church has been in charge politically, like when there's been a state religion, there's never been a time where the church has not been either equal to or worse than any secular government. When the church runs the world, they've done a terrible job and they've stopped being the church. And you know, there are pockets of Christians today in Canada and elsewhere who are trying to get back political power. And quite frankly, I pray that they never do. The power of the gospel is not the power of the world. The power of the gospel is not a coercive kind of power. The power of the gospel is not a power to manipulate people with threats. We don't force we don't coerce, we don't pressure, we don't threaten, picket, shame, or legislate people into the kingdom. The power of the gospel is a very, very different kind of power. It's a very different kind of agenda. The power of the gospel is the power of outrageous love to influence people into the kingdom of love. When you start forcing people into the kingdom, when the church begins to wield uh, political power, like the political kingdoms of this world, when it begins to demand recognition, it's no longer the kingdom of God that you're forcing them into. It may be the kingdom of the enemy. It may be the kingdom of your opinions. It may be the kingdom of your agenda. It may be the kingdom of what you call your orthodoxy, but it's not the kingdom of God's love. Friends, the only way to get people into the kingdom of God's love is by loving them.
Let me say that again. The only way to get people into the kingdom of God's love is by loving them, doing for them what Christ has done for us. Jesus agape us. He laid down his life for us. And so we love others. We agape others. We ascribe worth to all others at cost to ourselves. And we don't coerce or force or pressure or legislate people into a kingdom of love. If God wanted to coerce people into the kingdom, he could have done it himself, but he didn't. He gives people space, and so too, we must give people space. The institutional Christian church has done so much harm. We need think no further than uh, residential schools. The institutional Christian church has done so much harm on planet Earth. You know, that in itself is probably one of the very best arguments non-Christians can make against Christianity. The fact that so much harm has been done in the world in the name of God. Think about indigenous children separated from their parents, indigenous peoples separated from their culture, assimilation in the name of Christianity. Church history is filled with people killing in the name of Christianity, people being killed in the name of Christianity, Muslims killed, Jews killed, so-called heretics killed, Anabaptists killed in the name of Christianity, wars waged in the name of Christianity. I shouldn't have to say this, but let me go on the record as saying killing is bad, like it's really bad. But killing in the name of Jesus is worse. The kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate has nothing to do with killing. And I think that's one reason why I probably will never use the word religion in a positive sense, because religion has been the most murderous force on planet Earth, including the so-called Christian religion. Sobel Church is not a religion. We are not interested even one little bit in having people come to our digital platform uh, like Church Online or coming in person to our building to, you know, to sign up to some human thing uh, that people create. No. What we talk about is the true Lord, the God of creation, the God who is himself love. 1 John 4, 8, God is Love, the God who saves us by his love, the God who transforms us by his love, the God who wins the world by his love, the God who demonstrated his love at the cross of Calvary, this God who looks like Jesus. When we start talking about forcing people, pressuring people, coercing uh, people, we're no longer talking about the true kingdom of Jesus. Well, we're gonna leave it there for today. We're gonna come back to it uh, next week, and we wanna talk again about this kind um, characteristic of love and look at its practical implications, both for us as individual followers of Jesus as well as for our church family. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would make us outrageously loving.
Give us boldness to stand up to the spirit of religion that chokes the flow of love. God, would you give us a bold vision for our community, a bold vision that is flavored by your outrageous and lavish and reckless love. Would you show us a multitude of ways, like backpacks, that we can express the kindness of love to the people around us? God, your word tells us that you demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And so may we affirm the unsurpassable worth of all others, Lord Jesus, just as you did in self-sacrificial love. And may we express the kindness of agape with no thought of what's in it for us. Holy Spirit, would you give us a baptism of love for our good, for your glory, and to build the kingdom of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.